Mamma Mia subscribers, you've been asking and we've been listening. Now you can get all of your exclusive subscriber audio on Apple Podcasts. That includes everything from bonus episodes of your favourite pods to exclusive segments to all of our audio series. To link your Mamma Mia subscription to Apple Podcasts, open the Mamma Mia Out Loud page in your Apple Podcasts app and follow the prompts or head to help.mamamia.com.au. You're listening to a Mamma Mia podcast. From Mamma Mia, hi, I'm Claire Murphy. Welcome to The Quickie, getting you up to speed daily. Recently, our Mamma Mia colleague Jessie Stevens told us that she'd done something that many of us may have considered doing ourselves. I did online this My DNA test. Have you guys heard of this? I'm terrified of giving my DNA to anybody. While I'm obviously hesitant at handing over my DNA to anyone, Jessie's gone on to do another test to see if she and twin sister Claire are identical or not. Today, we look at what these consumer DNA test kits are revealing, whether they're accurate, and what you need to know about what else your DNA could be used for. Move by Mamma Mia! is the exercise app for anybody, anywhere. And in case you missed it, we dropped a brand new stretching collection that can be used to improve mobility and bookend your favourite sweat sessions. Mamma Mia! subscribers get unlimited access to Move, and we drop new workouts every single week. If you're on the hunt for movement that makes you feel good, head to move.mamamia.com.au and use the code MOVE10 to get $10 off a yearly subscription. If you don't know her already, our Mamma Mia colleague Jessie Stevens is not just the host of True Crime Conversations, The Delivery Room and co-host of Mamma Mia Out Loud. She's also a fan of sending off her DNA to get tested. I was at dinner one night and a friend brought it up and basically said that it can tell you if you have problems absorbing certain vitamins or minerals. It tells you things about your sleep cycles, how much caffeine you can have, things even about what exercise might work best for you. And I sort of didn't believe it. I thought it sounded a bit woo-woo. And with health stuff, I'm always very, very careful. So I went and did my own research and I actually spoke to the organization because I was just like, "Mm, is this legit or is this going to be not that scientific? But it turned out that it was and I read a bunch of reviews online. I think it's a lot bigger in the States and Australia is a little bit behind. And so I thought, okay, well, I would love to know a little bit more about my DNA and what it says about my life and how I might live a better life based on those insights. If you're a Redditor, though, you may be across a sub that's dedicated to stories from those who've had their DNA tested through a company called 23andMe. While most are sharing their results and comparing with others, some have some serious questions. It says I have a half-sister. She's from the same place where my mum and dad met and lived. 23andMe says I'm 0% German, but Ancestry says I'm 35% German. It came back that our uncle is our half-sibling. How can my half-sister be listed as my niece and my full-sister listed as a half-sister? 
There are also stories of couples who find out they're actually half-siblings through donor sperm, dads who turn out not to be dads, and even historical stories of how white men sexually assaulted the slaves they owned, leading to genealogy that saw one African-American man find out he had a whole white side of the family. But more often than not, there's confusion about how the results reflect the real life of the person who took the test. Aside from obvious skeletons in the closet, there are health and genealogy results that differ depending on what company you go through, and the complicated nature of DNA results means they can be interpreted incorrectly by the person receiving them. So what did Jessie find out? It was able to tell me that I have an issue absorbing iron, which is really interesting because that's been something my doctors have been trying to get to the bottom of for a decade. There was another vitamin, I think it was vitamin A, that it said I have trouble absorbing. It told me that I do not metabolize caffeine very quickly. So that means that I should have my last coffee at midday at the latest. It also found that the gene responsible for looking at food and your brain lighting up and you getting really excited that wasn't there. And that's quite rare. So it's people who basically aren't excited by food at all and see it as gut luggage and basically fuel. I've felt like that for ages and to have that validated in my DNA was really interesting. The other thing it could tell was there's a very small portion of people that can eat and eat and not put on weight. I am not one of those people. It told me a few things about sleep, I think. And it also said that in terms of exercise, like I think endurance, it was like you'd be good at that. And it basically said what foods I should eat more of, which I thought was great. Direct-to-consumer genetic tests are becoming increasingly popular around the world. It's estimated that by the end of this year, around 100 million people will have sent their saliva off to labs across the globe to check where their ancestors hailed from, whether they're genetically predisposed to a health risk, or even just how quickly they'll age. But what are the risks of being tested in this way? Dr David Kirchhofer is the director of the Queensland Bioethics Centre and a faculty member of the Australian Catholic University's School of Theology and Philosophy. Doctor, what things do we need to know before we send off a consumer DNA test? First, of course, is that the findings could be inaccurate. So the technology is fallible and it can only do certain things. We live in a world where we want to have absolute answers to things, but genetics is a field that's growing and emerging. And so not all the technologies work the same way and they can find different things and they have different levels of accuracy. They also have different levels in once they do find something, the fact that that might even eventuate into anything. So that's the first thing. So the findings themselves are prone to risk in the sense that they may not be accurate. Some of the genetic risks that they might discover can be such that they may never eventuate. So just because we find an abnormality or a variation is a better word, doesn't necessarily mean it has any clinical significance. And even where we find genes that might be associated and have been shown to be associated with particular conditions, it doesn't mean that in a person's particular case it's going to eventuate into anything. There is the downside, well, some would see it as a downside, in the sense of finding out about a disease that you can actually do nothing about. So There are some diseases that have a genetic origin that you may not have at the moment in your life, but they may eventuate much later in life, but they may have to be something for which there's no cure. And that then raises a question for how you would live your life in light of that information. So some might argue, 
well, that's great because then you can, you know, live your life to the full because you know that this is going to happen and you can make plans around that. And knowledge is good in that sense. But one also has to recognize that it could also have a negative effect. You know, if you've, you're always thinking about this axe that's hanging over your head that's eventually going to get you, how would that make you live your life and whether that's something you really want to know? And of course, sometimes these things play out in that they may be related to other relatives. Your siblings or parents or children might also have this gene. And that can have an impact because it can have an impact on your relationships. If you find something out about yourself, ought you to tell the other person, the other people, and say, well, you look, I found this about myself, you ought to go get yourselves tested. But then it could also have the implication of saying they may not want to know at all. And it's very hard to know that. How do you navigate that space is quite a challenge in and of itself. You can also get unexpected findings that people weren't wanting to discover, for example, around parentage. So depending on the nature of the test, you know, you might uncover that, in fact, your father isn't your father or something like that. So that's something to bear in mind. Then I would also say that I think one has to recognize that genes are information. And so like all information, it's stuff that can be used for good or for bad in the right or the wrong hands, as the case may be. We're quite obsessed about privacy in many ways. And also completely oblivious to the fact that we risk our privacy all the time. So if you'd ask people, what kind of information would you be prepared to share with a stranger? Most people would say, well, you know, this and this and this, but not this and this and this. And then you say, well, open your phone and look at the apps and read the privacy conditions of all the apps on your phone. We'll often find that they've actually shared an awful lot of information that they didn't even know they'd been sharing. And the thing about genetic information is that it can also be information that can be used by people for good or for harm. And I think it's important to recognize that those risks are possible. So it could be used potentially by governments, insurers, in the allocation of medical resources based on an idea of people having predispositions to certain diseases and that might disadvantage you in accessing certain things. In Australia at the moment, there is a moratorium for life insurance companies to use genetic findings as part of their assessment of your risk. But it is important to recognize that that's a moratorium and laws can change. And so what will that mean for you in the future, especially given that in the context of health, where there's normally an assumption, in fact, an obligation for one to disclose previous health conditions, medical history and so on. So once you do a test and you have a diagnosis, that has potential future implications for other things. And then there is also the risk of crossover in information. So normally we sequester different kinds of information. So forensic databases for criminal purposes are kept separate from clinical and medical histories in general. But there is room in the law in some of this in some spaces. And one needs to recognize the chances that one could become involved in things that you didn't even know you were going to be involved in. One question that many sceptical of the service ask is what can happen to my DNA once it's been used by the lab I send it to? The fact is, direct-to-consumer companies often sell off their genetic databases to third parties. In 2018, GlaxoSmithKline spent over $300 million investing in 23andMe. In the years leading up to that deal being finalised, the company had already sold access to its DNA database to 13 other pharmaceutical companies. What those companies then did with that data is unknown. Jesse, did you read the fine print about where your DNA could also go before you sent it off? Were you aware it could be used by other people? Look, I'm not much of a fine print reader, I will admit, but I did see somewhere that it said it wasn't going to sell my data to someone. And I was like, that's enough for me. And I, I did do a little bit of research when I was looking up reviews and stuff. And they said that they promised not to pass it on or to 
give it to any big corporates or anything like that, that they're going to keep your DNA safe and that it's private and blah, blah, blah. And because I'd done Ancestry DNA before as well. And for whatever reason, it doesn't make me anxious. I've never been worried about that. Whereas I know there's other people that are really apprehensive. But for me, that fine print was enough. Dr. Kirchhofer says it's important to read the fine print before you send your DNA anywhere. But more than that, you need to understand it, which for those of us without a law degree may prove to be difficult. Dr. Jacqueline Savard is a senior lecturer in health ethics, law and professionalism within the School of Medicine at Deakin University. Her research explores the ethics of genomic testing. She says it's harder to know where your DNA will end up if it's being sent overseas. So it's always important to be aware of that while some laboratories where your DNA is sent to are located in Australia, some might be located in other countries and they may have different legal regulations. So if you do send your DNA overseas to another company, it's important to explore and find out a bit about their terms and conditions to understand what you might be signing up for when you do that. So for example, some companies overseas may say, yes, we'll take your sample and we're going to store it within our database. But they may also put in their terms and conditions that, yes, and we also share our databases with medical researchers, or we may package certain results or demographics of our contributions to then go on for research with different people who have decided to do research in that area. And that's where it's important to be aware of the terms and conditions and aware of what the company might say, what's happening with your DNA after you send it to them. A lot of the companies, and I'm familiar with some of the ancestry companies, have actually started doing very clear pictographs explaining step by step, you know, when you send us your DNA, this is who can have access to it, this is how we store it, and this is what might happen to it after it's been with us for a while. So can you give us a quick rundown on the difference between, say you go in for a targeted DNA test because you have a genetic condition, for example, or because you want to find out say if you have the BRCA gene or something like that, compares to getting one of these DNA tests for your ancestry or one of those really broad, overarching healthcare DNA tests. Is there a difference between the two? There definitely is a difference. So when we're thinking about a clinical test inside the clinical setting, it's usually an individual has a health concern. They'll speak with a healthcare professional like a GP who may think there's something going on here. I'm going to forward you on for genetic testing. You would then include a genetic counselor inside of the process. And there are excellent individuals who will work with you to understand what's going on, get your family history and a clinical geneticist. And together, they'll help choose an appropriate test that will help answer a clinical question And that's where there's a good process. They may find that you do have something, as you brace the example, like a BRCA mutation, which is an important thing to find out and know about. And then you can choose what type of healthcare options or interventions are most appropriate. And that's a very well done process inside of our healthcare system and the clinical setting. The other types of tests that we've talked about, um, the health and wellness ones, the ancestry testing, those happen in more of a consumer marketplace, shall we say, where someone can go looking online saying, oh, I want to find out about this. Here's a test that seems interesting to me. That's where you may ask to either go through an intermediary who will help order the test on your behalf, or you may order the test directly from the company. Then you'll send a sample off, they'll do an analysis, and then you'll get a report back. So what that report might look like is it will probably look at a range of different points in your DNA. So it doesn't look at all of your DNA, although there are options like that out there. They'll choose certain specific points and they'll look and say, well, what do you have here? And then they might compare it to the published evidence out there where scientists have done research. 
And so say overall, we have these 20 different points we've looked at in your DNA. And we looked at your results at each of these points. We've compared it to some of the literature. And now this is where how they interpret the literature and your results can change the information that you get back. So say one company looks and says, well, out of these 20 results, we have 15 that we really look at. And it appears that you may have something there that is highly linked with a high risk for condition X. They might return that report to you. But then if you go to another company, another company say, well, actually, we look at all 20. And when we look at all 20 results, we find that you've got six that are associated with a high risk, four that are associated with a low risk, and then another 10 that we're uncertain where they fall yet. So overall, we think you might have a little bit of a high risk, but we're unsure right now. But here are your results too. Now, that could be really challenging for someone who gets these results back because they say, well, I have the same DNA, but I have these two different interpretations. Which one do I believe and how do I make sense of this? And that's where we really need to take a really strong look at say, well, what actually is the health concern going on? And if it's something that's really related to your health and your well-being, that is a question that you should work in conjunction with a healthcare professional so they can find those clinical tests that may be relevant to you. Or if you're getting results back that's based on really early science, our knowledge about it could still be very early and we might actually need more time to understand what's going on. For Jessie, she's now extended her DNA testing to find out more about her relationship to her twin sister, Claire. They've been told they are fraternal twins, but their similarities are so closely matched, many have questioned whether they're in fact identical. So does Jessie think anything will change if she and Claire do end up being identical? So much. I think it really matters. I think it would explain a lot. Things that you believe about who you are and your genetics inform your identity in a lot of ways. And so we've always believed we were fraternal, which is that we would have no more similar DNA than siblings. But then I was speaking to someone on the phone about this DNA test and she said, if you've got the same colouring, if you've been mixed up your entire lives, the likelihood is that you're identical and that that was based on the science at the time. They assumed that we were fraternal. I think it would make a really big difference. And there's a lot of twins in my life that they're like, if it turns out you're identical, I'll be taking the test because I want to know more about my relationship and the genetic similarity I have to my twin. Are you prepared for the result to be that you are actually fraternal? If we're fraternal, I'll be really, really disappointed. I feel in my heart that we're identical and I really want that to be the result, but I'm prepared either way. Should you get a direct-to-consumer DNA test or not? Well, that's up to you to decide. But Dr Savard says there are some questions you need to ask yourself first. I will never tell someone not to get tested, but I do encourage them to think about it, that if you are thinking of getting tested, you know, ask yourself questions why you want these tests. Who might you share them with? Think about your family because DNA results are relative to your family as well. There's a relational aspect to your information. So be mindful that you're not just testing yourself. You may be testing your whole family as well and have those conversations. Think about them and also question about where's my DNA going and do I feel comfortable with what I'm signing up for? That's the quickie for today. This episode was produced by myself, Claire Murphy, and our executive producer, Siobhan Moran-McFarlane, with audio production by Ian Camilleri. Mamma Mia acknowledges the traditional owners of the land we have recorded this podcast on, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. 
We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures.